Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind the scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of the Nature Photographer Podcast, brought to you by NAMPA and the guys from Wild and Exposed Podcast. Tonight we have Mark Raycroft, Jason Loftus, Ron Hayes, myself, Don Wilson, and we have a fun guest for you tonight, Michael Forsberg, who is our all things planes and cranes, and looking forward to speaking with him. I've seen seen his work for a long time. I still remember the first time I ever saw cranes out in central Nebraska uh, along the Platte River, and I was absolutely floored and stunned and happened to come across his work in the visitor center there at the Rose Sanctuary, and gosh, that was probably, I think that was probably 12 years ago now, 12, 14 years ago, but just that sound was unbelievable in the dark to hear all those cranes out there. So so welcome tonight, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to catching up with you and chatting about some of the projects I've seen over the years from you and what you're working on tonight. Or today. <laughs> Thanks, Don. Yeah, it's nice to be with all of you. So why don't we get started with, um, I'm curious to see, obviously you, you spend a lot of time, you're based out of Nebraska, you spend a lot of time working on um, plains habitats and conservation issues out there with a particular interest in Platte River Corridor. I know you've got a couple projects along, along that line. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what's your favorite thing that you have going on right now? Wow. Well, favorite thing, that's that's difficult. I think maybe one of the most rewarding right now is is uh, something you just alluded to a minute ago about the Platte. Uh, back in 2011, um, a buddy of mine, Mike Farrell, who was a longtime documentary filmmaker for public television, and I came up with the idea um, to try to put a watershed in motion using time-lapse cameras spread out from mountains to plains. And uh, we chose the Platte River, which of course is our home watershed. And we wanted to uh, simply pose the question to folks, where does your water come from? And then what is a watershed and what does it mean to live in one today? And that was 10 years ago, back in 2011. And so we're in our 10th year of that project. When we pitched it, we pitched it to a couple of foundations, a few friends, and then the University of Nebraska's Institute of Ag and Natural Resources. And um, today, uh, that project, besides having about 60 time-lapse cameras throughout the basin, um, we have told almost 180 stories um, we have over 3 million images in the archive and counting. Um, we have a undergraduate internship program. Uh, we have a graduate uh, master's degree program that we're starting. And soon we hope to have an undergraduate minor in conservation photography. And all of that spins around um, this idea of leveraging the power of photography to tell story about something that we can all connect with, which is water. It doesn't matter who you are, what you believe, how much money you make, you know, where you live, what, what you know, denomination you are, whatever. Um, it's equally important to all of us because we don't have water. If it's not safe to drink, it's showstopper. Everything stops. No ecology, no economy, period. So, um, 
So we've grown that organically over the years. And uh, I, I think the most exciting thing is just to see the light go on for people, especially our students. And, you know, our, our biggest goal in this project beyond just getting water out there on the table to talk about is to try to grow the next generation of conservation storytellers. So we have a lot of kids that come into this project and um, they have science backgrounds, um, but they aren't necessarily as interested in the research as they are in being the bridge and being communicators between science and the general public and educators. And, um, you know, there's there's no greater tool to use in the world, I don't think, today than, than photography. Mike, that undergraduate of conservation photography, is that a program that you guys are developing through this research that you've done? Yeah, we're we're so we're we're working towards a minor in conservation photography first. Um, takes a while to create a major, um, and uh, but yeah, that's we're we're responding to what we know is a as a need and a desire out there by a lot of a lot of students that we see that come forward, and not just in Nebraska but in other places around the country. Photo workshops that I teach at and other venues that I talk in. Um, you know, there's, it's something that you can do. It's not just something you can do. You can actually get paid for it, you know, and, and it's a, it's, I feel like it's a real job growth opportunity in this field today, um, where you have conservation NGOs, you may have, uh, federal state agencies that are working in conservation, um, other initiatives that are around, um, environmental topics and, and they all need folks that, can do the science and can do the policy, but they also need somebody who can tell the stories. And it's not always, you know, journalists, journalists flying in and telling a story about something and being third person. This is, this is more, um, more personal, more narrative, um, and being embedded in an organization and actually working for them and, and, um, not necessarily marketing. It's not marketing, you know, it's, it's storytelling. Um, which just just means um, not just talking from your head, but also from your heart. So, I've had a conversation with a few people about. I was a communications major, but and I won't say how many years ago. But I wish these types of programs existed then. They just they especially out in the East Coast, they just weren't there. And then I see the things that students have the opportunities to learn about and be involved with as, as students, and it's just so phenomenal the things that they can get involved with today. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, and and I know that in other there's you know other academic institutions in the country that are going down this path, and and uh, um, it is exciting. You know, you got to you got to get out there. You got to take these take these kids into these places and and share and show and and get their get their feet wet and their hands dirty and 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 you know meet. Meet folks out there that are actually on the land, working on the land, and and understand that, that um, taking care of the land and conservation in general is it's there, there's no red easy button here. These these are complicated, you know, complicated and very nuanced discussions, and we're never going to be able to go back to what this country was before Euro American settlement. But we have to understand it. We have to understand where we're coming from where we are now, and then just ask, what do we want this place to be? I, I know Mark has a question. I'm sorry, but I was going to comment on that because it's 
I live on the North Platte and from Colorado through the big loop back through Nebraska, the North Platte is the economic center of that whole watershed as well. And there's a lot of, uh, uh, you guys' project is enormous when you take all those things into consideration. It is. Um, and, uh, you know, Ron, I, I didn't know much uh, of the of the Platte River. Where I live in Nebraska, just for, you know, listeners, viewers out there, clear on the eastern end of the watershed, sort of near the drain um, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, but the entire Platte Basin is about 90,000 square miles and takes up parts of eastern Colorado and eastern Wyoming as well. And where Ron lives is sort of on the other end of the watershed and the North Platte. The North Platte swings through Wyoming and comes into Nebraska. The South Platte swings through Colorado and comes into Nebraska and, and then joins and forms the main stem. And, and um, yeah, it's a river that's fully appropriated, meaning um, that it, every drop of that water is spoken for. Um, by by someone or some entity or some decision. In some cases, it's over-appropriated, meaning that in drier water years or less than normal years, there's too many straws in. Um, that's, that's a mistake, but that's our history. So the path of that water and where it goes, um, how it navigates through our, our economies and, and through our environment is, is really important. And at every place, it's very interesting and it's very personal. You know, Ron has a series of dams and reservoirs that are right upstream from where he lives. Um, each one of those are remarkable engineering marvels, <laughs> but they also uh, change the course of the river forever. You know, um, and uh, doesn't mean it's right or it's wrong, but it is what it is. And you have to understand that, um, I think, in order to be able to make um, and I have intelligent conversations about that, which is always where conservation starts is is in conversation can't have if you can't talk about it um you know they just shooting arrows at each other over a wall and that's silly we're, we're done done with that i hope well i was just thinking well this is such a complex project you're working on and and has so many layers to it but the timeliness as far as teaching storytellers uh, honestly, there's been no more pressing time, it seems, than now to educate the public on the importance of this and the management of this. So I, I salute you and your and your program and hope it continues to expand. And, and obviously, I would think more and more people of all ages who are um, encouraged by conservation photography will hopefully get involved. But how do you – so can you – first of all, there, there's got to be a link with the history of 10 years of this where people can just go and, and obviously we'll put it in our show notes. But if you could say where people can quickly check online and, and get a background and, and see visuals and what's happening, that would be wonderful. And then maybe a bit of uh, detail and the time lapse portion of this from a photographer's point of view is just how much fun would it be to try and figure that out from origin through all of these uses and purposes and, and visually translate that, capture it, document it, to share it. Some of that step-by-step step would, I'd, I'd love to hear. Well, first of all, thank you, Mark. Um, the the website, which I know you'll post up later, uh, is just Platte Basin Time Lapse. 
pbt.com. So it's one big long word. We've, we've narrowed it down to PBT for short. That's when we talk about the project. We talk about PBT, but it's plat based and time lapse. And, uh, you know, it's, we, we really are just making this up as we go. Um, you know, there's no roadmap in this. I, when I was in school, I was, I majored in geography. So I never took a writing class, speaking class, photography class, or business class in my life. <laughs> and those are the things that I do. But the, I picked geography because I was really curious about the world and how everything interacted with everything else, you know. And I think as photographers, we have we have to have that too. We have to have that intense curiosity, maybe not understanding what all the answers are, but being able to ask the questions and be curious and investigate. And that's really what this um, what this project is is all about. And uh, and you know, from my geography roots, you have to learn a lot about physical geography, how the land. Um, you know, operates. And, you know, we live, we live on a planet that is alive. Um, but we oftentimes have a difficult time seeing the skin of the earth actually breathe. You know, if you take that old, boring geography, physical geography textbook that talks about erosion and deposition and flood and drought and change of the seasons and all of that stuff and, and, and restoration and degradation, you put a camera out on a landscape and you press the go button and it's taken pictures dawn to dusk every day, every hour for years at a time. And then you present that in a way that shows the land breathing, the water moving, um, just like the systems in our body. And you see this, you see the earth in a way that you could not otherwise perceive. Um, you all probably know Jim Balog. Um, Jim's National Geographic photographer. He lives in Colorado. Um, Jim started the Extreme Ice Survey, which was, I don't know now how long ago that was, 15, 20 years ago. Um, you know, and that was an outgrowth of a National Geographic assignment of his um, to document the retreat of the world's glaciers. You know, and, and when Jim started that project, which was in, in, in one measure an inspiration for ours, it proved that you could look at large scale change over time um, in a way that otherwise you wouldn't be able to perceive. And, and that provided irrefutable evidence um, of, of ice melting glaciers retreating, no matter what your politics were, who you were arguing for or against, there it was right there, you know? And and so that's when we put these cameras out on the landscape, we just try to decide what chapter in the story of that water are we going to tell? You know, are we going to put it on a windmill stock tank in the middle of ranch country? Are we going to put it on on a, you know, a dam or a reservoir? Are we going to put it in the middle of a city on a golf course uh, up in a high alpine lake, um, you know, on a tall grass prairie, on a river full of cranes, you know, Um and we put it in place and just hope to God that it works and doesn't get washed away, flooded out, attacked by cows, um, lightning strikes. <laughs> all those things have happened. <laughs> They've all happened. Um, but that's sort of the fun of it, too. And you can take that as a template and you can apply it to anything, you know. So one of the projects I'm working on now is, is, is working on, on uh, a flyway for birds. And it's 
in a daisy chain time-lapse cameras all the way up and down a flyway from the far north down to the deep south, you know, and watch that thing change over time. So they're great tools. They're not the only thing because those sit out there and then you leave them and they do the work while you're gone. And it's still real important to be also on the ground and engaged in an intimate way in these landscapes and with these people and, and with wildlife and, and all the stories that we tell around these cameras are that way. It's, 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 you got to feel this stuff too, you know? So, so they work together. Well, you found your passion from uh, geography to this. I mean, there's so many elements to this. Clearly it, it feeds you and, and has tremendous purpose. You know, one of the things, so I think I mentioned, we were talking a little bit um, when we were emailing about what I do. And, you know, so I do some guiding in the park. And one of the things I love showing people, because most of who I work with is from out of state. And I take them up to Milner Pass. And I know you're familiar with the lake up there because it's kind of, it's the headwaters of the Pooter. And I get up there and it's, you know, they're all fascinated with the sign, the Continental Divide sign and, you know, learning about water and, you know, how it flows to the west and to the east. And I, and I, Usually I'll ask people, I say, well, think about where this is starting and where does it wind up? And most of them can't tell me. And it's, you know, think about how it is, just like you said, it's all interconnected. And I tell them, I'm like, all right, well, this is the Poudre River. And that little tiny creek over there is what starts as the Poudre River and winds up in the Gulf of Mexico. And they're like, what? And I, so I go through and tell them, you know, well, the Poudre flows into, the, I think, you know, all the different rivers that they flow into each other. And they're like, wow, I never even thought about that. But yeah, multiple states away and they get, it, it puts a different perspective on it. And so, like you said, a lot of those visuals really help and communicating to people and they, and giving them something that's tangible to them and that they can kind of grab, put their own grasp around. Yeah. I think that's important. We all have a voice. Um, and that, all, that voice is all uh, very you know, each of each of our voices and perspectives are very different. It's like we can all stand on top of a hilltop and photograph the sun, same sunset, same camera and the same lens. And we're all going to photograph it differently because we're all different people, you know, based on the collection of experiences that we've had up to that point in our own lives. And and in this project, um, you know, we we want to try to build community around watersheds, we want to sort of pull up those straight lines that we draw on a map that separate Wyoming and Colorado and Nebraska and Utah and Montana and the North Dakota and South Dakota and Nevada. You know, I mean, I'll, you, you look at any state that goes from the, you know, from the Midwest through the Great Plains and the Intermountain West to the coast, and almost all of them are straight lines on a map, and then we're divided by counties. Well, you know, nature pays no attention <laughs> to those straight lines. It doesn't matter, you know, so... You know, Don, you and I are are and and Ron, we're we're all neighbors, you know, in the same watershed. Just you know, you guys are just upstream of me, and so, and and um, and so I I think we can we it's just that perspective of how you how you turn it and how you look at something and projects like this that are that are photographically driven um, are really important today. I think they're more important now than they ever have been, just because your reach can be so quick and so instant and, and worldwide. And if, if I had a dream out of this project that we're talking about right now, it would simply be that that template could be lifted up and applied in other watersheds, scaled down or scaled up. It could be the creek in your backyard or it could be the Zambezi River in Africa, you know, but it's just taking that idea, 
going up the straight lines. Don't pay attention to the political boundaries. Let's just think about us together um, living in watersheds. So, um, you know, it's not a it's not a new idea either. Talking about that and kind of playing off of that a little bit is a good segue to what I was just going to ask. Part of the conservation photography program, I think, should be centered around partnership. And you're talking about building the community between state to state, but there's so many entities also in this watershed that you've got to work cooperatively with. What kind of uh, efforts and, and partnerships have you guys had the toughest time developing? You know, we've never had, we haven't had a difficult time um, developing any of these. Um, maybe that's just because we've asked the right folks to participate. But um, we have in this project, we have over 30 um, uh, official um, partners, uh, cooperators, um, supporters uh, that range from uh, federal and state agencies to nonprofit NGOs to individual farms and ranch operations to municipalities um, and uh, and so forth and so um, you know I think there's 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 sometimes there's apprehension you know you want to you want to put a camera out there to watch what you know and well are you going to see me if I'm out there skinny dipping in the creek and my on camera for the world and you know it's it's the answer is no unless if it's at the top of the hour you know <laughs> and the camera takes a picture but um yeah it's just we just try to be real honest out here i mean you know having been born and raised here in the great plains and and lived in in nebraska most of my work life and worked in the great plains most of my life um you just got to be honest with people and tell them what you want to do and why and then they're either going to accept that or they're or they're not. And even if they don't accept it, they may still invite you in for dinner, you know, which is not like a lot of other places in the world. So um, so we we have not had uh, many problems that way at all. Um, and, uh, um, and that's really, really fortunate. And I guess I shouldn't have phrased it that way. I didn't want to insinuate that there were negative uh, contacts or negative relationships but there are a lot of you talked about the straws there are a lot of straws which cause a lot of political turmoil but there are also a lot of entities that manage those straws and that's kind of what i was getting at well yeah it it uh it, at least where i live in this watershed uh the platte river is uh is is managed for um a number of different stakeholders that all necessarily have to work together because if they don't, then the wheels start falling off. And if, you know, if, if my farmer friend South of Kearney doesn't have enough water to irrigate the crops, it's, it's pretty likely that there's probably not enough water in the river to grow turns and plovers in the summer, you know, or whatever, you know, pick whatever that is. Um, we, you know, we live in a semi-arid landscape, Great Plains in North America is, is um, we're always talking about weather and water. We're measuring rainfall in the hundreds of an inch. We're real concerned about snowpack in the mountains, all of that stuff. And out west, that's the conversation that you have every day in some way, shape, or form. And so I think people understand that we all have to figure out how to, how to 
play together, um, maybe not nicely all the time, but civilly. And, uh, um, you know, we have these Western water laws, which we won't get into tonight, but they're very antiquated uh, that were built around what people knew at the time. Um, but there was a lot that, that, that nobody knew at the time about, about how these how these watersheds were, were connected. And, uh, um, you know, you didn't talk a lot about ecology or anything like that then. So, but that's what we've got to work with now. Um, so you either go forward and work together or else you end up suing each other over and over and over and over again. And you waste a whole lot of money and you waste a whole lot of time. And nobody wants to do that anymore. So are there specific positive changes that have come out of this project that you can directly correlate to people seeing what you've done and, and communicated to an outcome that they've changed on their end. Right. See, I get, so I've got, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a faculty appointment in the school of natural resources at the university of Nebraska. And one thing I've learned, um, in academic institutions is that you have to have measurable outputs and outcomes, <laughs> you know, you got to quantify all this stuff. Well, that's damn hard to do in this. It just is. I, you know, I can't, I can't sit and, and tell anyone that, that we have uh, positively made a difference in these ways, um, in these parts of the watershed or in these communities or to these individuals by measuring that. Uh, what I can tell you uh, with great confidence is that a lot more people know about this project today than when we started. And success to me and success to my partner, Mike, um, is uh, to see these young people um, move through this project and go out into the world with a, with a, not just an understanding, but a love um, uh, for this place that they call home and um, all the tools that they've gotten in the tool bag now that can go out and do the kind of work that they want to do in the world. And all the, the folks in all these communities that have been voices in this project, um, you know, we've I've, I feel like we've built a community and we're just going to keep going that way as long as we as long as we can. Um, it's it's a hard thing to pin uh, anything quantitatively, um, but we are all in this work, I think, uh, playing the long game. You know, um, we're we're in this for a long time. There's no finish line in conservation. And sometimes you got to you got to come at it with a hammer. Um, sometimes you got to come at it just um, with the story, with the soft touch. And I think both are necessary today. Well, fresh water is is so so important, and will be even more so, I believe, as populations grow and resources are challenged in years ahead. So the fact that you're uh, visually showing this and educating people who may may or may not stay in your geographic area but can apply it anywhere they go in the world and care about this water is i mean air and water right i mean we, we need food but we clean water is is critical for everything so it's it's is there a more worthy cause and and i mean there may be a few but this is this is right up there as far as, as um, just 
education in conservation and and the importance of water for all of these ecosystems and and like you say i love i love how you put it earlier whether you do it in a small scale in your backyard or a much larger scale i mean why not larger but anything's good it, it can be applied so it, it what a project and and to do it for a decade and to have the technology and, and move through that and and continually refining it it'd be exciting to see where this goes and and obviously just people need to know and and learn and be moved by these things and and education is the best way to expand on conservation in my opinion and, and what i've seen with various organizations so it's i can appreciate the stresses and the layers but also the the excitement and challenge of, of what you you create with this long project well, we're starting to hand the keys over to some of the younger ones. And, um, you know, they're all under 30 and they've all been through this program. And, and uh, you know, it's like it's like being a pastor at a church a little bit too long. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can only or being a politician or whatever it is you want. You know, there, there should be term limits on certain things. And I never want to step out of this completely, but it's it's time for, um, you know, new ideas, new blood. And so as Mike and I start to not step away completely, but to step back, um, you know, it's, it's all right, gang, what are we going to do next? What are we going to lean into next? What do you guys care about? Where are the holes? Um, what do we, where do we need to go next? And that's really exciting too. And we've had, you know, in our case, we've had great support, um, from the university of Nebraska and the school of natural resources and, the Institute of Ag and Natural Resources. We've got wonderful uh, funding support, people that believe in us and, and what we do. And, uh, um, you know, none of us in this work um, as photographers exist in a vacuum. All of us on this screen rely on help from others every day. And it's it's hard for, I think, a lot of photographers. You know, I'm, I'm a classic introvert. I don't like to be in front of people. I don't, you know, I don't like looking on camera or talking or anything like that. But what I learned a long time ago is that you have to pull the curtain back a little bit and you got to let people in. Um, you don't have to show them everything or tell them everything, but you got to let them in just enough to know that you're a real person. They want to know not just what that picture is and, and maybe how beautiful or compelling it is, but, but why, you know? Why? Why did you make that picture? What's the story there? Give me a little bit of something that I can grab onto that I can relate to you that way. And um, so, so we do it right each in our own way. So, as a talented photographer, uh, speaking of you in this case, and and all of your accolades over the years, which I'd love to listen and may do so in a moment, I was on your website prior to this podcast, excitingly looking at your work. And speaking of the power of images, there was one that resonated with me because my a big part of my heart and soul resides in the remote central wilderness of Alaska, and you had an image of a big flock of sandhill cranes flying in front of the Alaska range. And I've had the wonderful opportunity to have been up there a dozen or 15 times to witness this. And to me, it's a harbinger of fall to be in the far north, hear the cranes calling. I mean, there's so many things that I draw my eyes to on the colorful tundra, but to look up and see these birds flying and then to think about 
the migration that they go through at that point with the range and everything. Could you tell us a little bit about, and for everybody listening to this Nampa podcast, obviously you have to go to Michael's website and we'll have a link to that and look at his wonderful images. And this one, as you scroll down, will be obvious there. So what's the story behind this this powerful and weather and moody, challenging image for these sandhill cranes? Yeah, we call that racing winter. That's the name that we gave it for the, um, for the print that we made from it. Um, that was taken... Uh, during the first book that I ever did, which was called On Ancient Wings, the Sandhill Cranes in North America. And the very first time I presented it actually was at a NAMPA conference in Denver <laughs> many, many years ago. And uh, that book took about five years to complete. And it was sponsored by the International Crane Foundation. And I sat down with a guy named George Archibald that co-founded that foundation and world's great crane biologist. And we decided on about 13 different places I'd go in North America to tell the story, the natural history of the Sandhill Crane, and then the conservation challenges that are wrapped around them and their lives. One of the places was Denali. And uh, so when I was doing research on Denali, I read this uh, this early day naturalist uh, journal uh, by a guy named Dixon. I can't remember his first name, but it was back in the early 1900s. And he talked about sitting on the hillside above Wonder Lake in the back country in early September, waiting for cranes to fly across the, the uh, face of, of the Alaskan range. And I read that passage and I just thought, oh shit, you know, I gotta do that. And um, uh, so I went out there one fall and um, took the bus into Wonder Lake, the 89 miles or whatever that, whatever that drive is. And uh, had my backpack and uh, uh, backcountry gear and all that and, and went and went and uh, set up camp and um, faced those mountains and I waited. And it rained and it rained and it rained and then it snowed and then it rained some more. And this went on for like four or five days, six days. And I was reaching towards the end of my time. And um, finally, the clouds started to break. And as soon as those clouds started to break, it was just like it was just like living on a train track that my grandparents used to live on. You could hear the train far off in the distance well before you could see it. You could hear these cranes and that big long line of these ragged flocks far off in the distance and then they'd get closer and closer and then finally you could see them. They'd just come out, they'd appear out of the clouds and then they'd just keep going and then they'd disappear into the clouds again. You could then, you could hear them call you know, um, until everything just sort of went to white. And then the next one would come and then the next one would come. And, and, you know, as soon as that front had gone through, all those birds that were backed up were ready to move. And it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever, I've ever had in my life. Um, and that picture was also taken on September 11th, 2001 the day that the plane struck the towers and I had no idea at the time um, had a ranger ride through on horseback and was telling people in the backcountry what had happened and so uh, the next day I packed up and uh, hiked back out um, went to the Wonder Lake campground found a phone you know then we didn't have cell phones and I called home and uh 
you know, and, and still to this day, you know, that was, it was 20 years ago. Um, I, I still have a hard time thinking about that. It gives me goosebumps just talking about it because, you know, here you are sitting watching something that has been going on for millennia. And cranes are international symbols of peace and hope, and and there's some there's nothing more pure than that moment. And then and then to balance that um, with with that, um, it's just something that I'll never forget the rest of my life. Well, magic happened for you. I mean, I, I didn't have any idea of the of the day it occurred and and the tragedy that that unfolded. That we all. I believe can remember the, where we were at that exact moment and still get chills and, and welling up tears in our eyes to think of the sadness of, of what occurred at that, that moment. It just, um, but your image truly is magical and, 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 and a symbolism of the strength of the species. And, and also, I mean, when you think of birds like this to segue into a, a positive biological perspective, it's just astounding to think that they learn this, this path and they continue to do it and do it effectively year after year, north, south, north, south, and, and migrate through all of these obstacles that challenge them. So I can, you know, for somebody who loves large mammals, I, I, myself, I can see the, the tremendous appeal even in what you did to be able to document that course for this species and, and share what it means with people who might not otherwise realize it. And for anybody who's in the north or wherever they migrate you know they're they're new here where i live in ontario it's seemingly the last few years i don't know it's if it's because when i'm not in alaska they come find me a few of them but in early autumn we get the odd flock that goes over and about uh two and a half hours northwest of us there are some that summer and, and nest there now but to me hearing the sound of sand hills in migration is the start of autumn and it's a magical sound and there's nowhere better than laying on the tundra and just looking up and watching them circle and circle who's in charge where are we going and all of a sudden they go right beautiful and we get them all in nebraska most of them anyway no kidding i've heard i mean i've never seen it for us it's a sign of spring you know they've they may use the platte river in nebraska as an overnight stop in the fall um but they they need it in the spring. So in the spring, it's the pinch in the hourglass of the central flyway anyway. And it's we're almost upwards of a million birds that are coming from a pretty large geography down south and then spreading out from, you know, Hudson Bay all the way over into the um, into Russia uh, across the Bering Straits and into the far north, as far north as Banks Island, clear above the Arctic Circle. And then, you know, in, in uh, you have the Pacific Flyway, and then you have the Rocky Mountain Flyway, and you have the Eastern Flyway, and then there's non-migrant uh, sandhill cranes as well in Mississippi and Florida and Cuba. Um, so there's a lot to these birds, just like there's a lot to any species, um, you know, uh, that you just don't know what you don't know until somebody tells you or shows you. So, um, yeah, it's... They're wonderful. They're great connectors. They connect habitats and people and uh, um, wildlife up and down the continent. And just like you, like we've been talking about, when you hear one of those cranes flying overhead, you stop in your tracks. It's such a unique sound. And like Mark said, it's you know a sign of autumn starting or it's a sign of spring coming. And it's to me, there's a consistency. Our world is in such turmoil in so many 
levels, yet there's that consistency that nature, they still show up every spring, or you hope they continue to show up every spring. Um, you know, so it's, it, there's a, a, almost a feeling of calm and maybe that's where the, the symbolism comes for cranes of, of peace and, um, and hope a little bit. Maybe it's all kind of related. I agree. That's, there's 15 crane species in the world and, and, and they're all considered sacred in whatever cultures that they've been. Um, if you ever want a real hoot and you want to hear all of them at once, um, go to the International Crane Foundation in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which has a beautiful campus um, and showcases all of these birds. Um, it is an absolutely amazing experience to see all of the world's cranes in one place. Um, they're all very different looking. They're all just striking. Um, and that's a, that's a wonderful organization that's advocating for, for these birds, uh, and their habitats, um, and, uh, and the five continents that they live on. Sounds like we have a road trip coming up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've captured a couple different, uh, what should I say, natural recoveries or had the opportunity to capture a couple of recovery programs between the, with the sandhill cranes, obviously the, the hooping cranes, which were when I was a kid down to 21 at one time, they travel with the sandhills. And, and now I think the population is up to around 600 roughly, That's which correct. is not, yeah, there's that. it's not huge, but it's, it's good. Yeah. But also, I saw on your on your website you also captured some black-footed ferrets. And being a photographer on the Great Plains, you've had opportunity to be out in, in that area. That or that uh, population was discovered about forty miles from where I grew up when I was a kid, and so that's one that I've always tried to stay in close touch with as well. Uh, near Matitsi, Wyoming. Yes, Matitsi, Wyoming. I grew up in Thermopolis, which is just down the road. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Where did you happen to, if you don't mind me asking? No, that's fine. Yeah, the um, the black-footed ferrets, uh, most of the work I've done with, with those animals have been in the Badlands of South Dakota. Um, working with researchers, primarily uh, the book that I did after uh, um, it, you sort of mark time in your life sometimes by by books <laughs> for me. And, and after the Sandhill Crane days were, were done, uh, it turned into the Great Plains. And I did a book called Great Plains, America's Lingering Wild, which was another about five year effort. And, and the goal of that book was to, um, you know, sort of dispel the notion that there's nothing out there, you know, that it's just flyover country. It's just, you know, one big flat cornfield out in the middle between New York and Los Angeles somewhere. And, and, uh, and the other thing was just to, um, you know, celebrate those landscapes and native animals that are still there and then take an honest look at the, you know, conservation challenges that are, that are there today. And what once was arguably probably the greatest grassland ecosystem on earth, you know, Europeans came here to go on safari. Um, it was ridiculous how much uh, life and energy we lost in a very short period of time from 1850 to 1900 and moving through until conservation started to become something that was important in this country. And, um, and so 
in the Great Plains in North America, these prairie species, you feel like you're just chasing ghosts a lot of times because you're just seeing these these mere remnants of what once was. And, um, you know, black-throated ferrets are one of those animals, you know, a key predator in prairie dog towns. But we've lost 98% of our prairie dog towns. Um, and with that comes about 130 vertebrate species that suffer as a result of that. And so... Um, today, there's still pockets that exist. There's still large landscapes that can support these animals, and there's restoration efforts underway, um, you know, both by uh, private entities and federal government and, and all that. And black-footed ferrets are, are uh, uh, amazing uh, creatures, very susceptible to things like plague. So it's a, it's a lot of work to keep these animals on the ground, but they are survivors and um, they're slowly trying to crawl their way back into existence here. Um, hard thing about photographing ferrets is they're nocturnal. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's uh, you, you have to shift from day shift to night shift with these animals and uh, um, spend an awful lot of time. But uh, yeah, you know, places like Western South Dakota, um, in Badlands, uh, Buffalo Gap National Grassland places are they're uh, um, they're still out there. Um, you know, area around in some areas in eastern Wyoming, uh, Front Range, Colorado. You know, even Rocky Mountain Arsenal and places like that. Uh, I was going to say I had some friends that had pretty good luck during the day photographing ferrets in the in the arsenal, but. And we've got some populations close to us and then some recovery efforts, but we unfortunately lost those prairie dog complexes to the plague here two years ago. And so those those efforts have been put on hold, obviously. Yeah, plague is a really is a really um, difficult thing because it just you know, you can be on a prairie dog town one day and it is full of life and you can go back there three weeks later, four weeks later, and it is a ghost town because everything has died. And, uh, um, and it takes such a long time for, um, those places to recover and they do, they can, um, but oftentimes not without, without help, you know, and that's where, that's where we step in. And, you know, the plague is, was a plague that, you know, it's not native to here, so it's a it's an in, a invasive species like a lot of other things are. So we just have to deal with it. Hey, Mike, uh, have you heard of the? I can't remember what it's actually called, but there's a project that there's a bunch of folks that are trying to, and I'm sure it's an organization. I don't remember the name. But I've caught wind of it where they're trying to actually recover um, what they can of the Great Plains in the U.S. Um, and actually buying up land and working with farmers and other landowners and, um, you know, the plans in the long term to potentially reintroduce some animals and different, you know, things of that nature. Have you heard of that? Yeah, Jay, I think what you're talking about probably is the American Prairie Reserve. Uh, uh, thank you. Yep, yep. So that's in eastern Montana. Um, just north of the of the upper missouri river um and what they're doing out there is is trying to connect a 
landscape of scale that would be larger than Yellowstone size uh, that would, uh, you know, inform and function, um, behave in a large enough way that would allow free-roaming bison herds and predators like grizzlies and wolves and the full complement of prairie dog towns and ferrets and sage-grouse and the whole and the whole business. Um, they're leveraging uh, a lot of public land that's out there already, like the Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge and UL Bend Wilderness. That's almost, oh, it's like 1.9 million acres just right there. There's a lot of BLM land. Um, there's Nature Conservancy land. There's a lot of different um, conservation lands there. And um, there's a lot of ranchers there and, and some farms too. And so, you know, it's a that's a project that has been going on uh, for a very long time. It's I think it's had um, a lot of growing pains, um, but it's it's still there. And I think the the idea of trying to, um, you know, find any way that we possibly can in the Great Plains to allow freedom to roam for these animals to be able to move and to live their lives in this landscape where they were and evolved to do that. You know, everything on the prairie evolved with, um, you know, great eyesight, run fast, be able to move very quickly, great distances if need be, or get in a hole and hunker down and wait, <laughs> you know? And, and so that freedom of movement is just built into this ecosystem and whether or not you're a butterfly that's trying to move uh, from one milkweed plant to another, whether or not you're a, um, you know, a grizzly bear coming out onto the plains or you're a black-footed ferret or, or whatever it is, you need a lot of room to roam. And I think that we have an opportunity to have places like the American Prairie Reserve that are very wildlife forward, um, you know, but I also think we can do it in working landscapes as well, um, you know, where it's just a matter of how do you, how can we connect one landscape to another and, and provide, you know, pronghorn migration to happen without getting hung up on fences and roads all the time? How can we provide um, sage grouse with enough room to be able to not just do what they do on the lex and that, and, but also be able to move and migrate as they need to, uh, to find forage in certain parts of the plains. And, you know, it's just all about space and connectivity. Um, but it's almost, you know, we just don't have a memory of it here so much, you know, and the prairies don't ingratiate people at a glance. You can't appreciate them from a roadside pullout in five minutes. It's very easy for me to go advocate for the Tetons by standing, you know, at whatever pullout that you that you want. It's like, look at it. Well, of course, it's beautiful. Of course, you know, stand on top of Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park. Well, duh, you know, I mean, yeah, of course, that's important, you know. When you're out on the prairies, when you're out on the plains, um, you got to spend the time. And I promise you, the more time that you spend, the more beauty that you see. It's just like peeling away the layers of an old friend. You know, it's just the more time you spend with them, the more that's there. Um, and uh, and that, again, is where photography comes in. I can sit and tell that to people. But what I really want to do is I want you to see it. And I can show you a picture that can get you in the door, whether or not it's a black-footed ferret or it's a 
cranes on the plat or, or whatever that is, the next thing I want you to do is go out there and spend that time. And, and I promise you, you'll, you'll fall in love, you know? And, yeah, I think it's important to, to take kids and other people out there and let them experience the sage grouse lecking and, you know, what an incredible um, experience that is. And people are blown away by that. And most, there's so many people out there that don't even know what a sage grouse is, you know? Um, and, and I think it's also promising, too. I feel like the efforts that are going on are working because you do see examples of, you know, natural overpasses and, you know, um, protecting um, migratory corridors and things of that nature. Um, the more we learn, the more we realize how important it is. And, you know, you're seeing efforts and things where there's a lot of positive things going on on that front. And I'm sure a lot of that work is being done by folks like yourself and other folks that are helping, you know, shed light on those issues and the opportunities there are to, you know, to protect those things. But Well, thanks. I, I think that there's, you know, if you're, if you live out there on the landscape, you care about it. I don't care if, you know, what it is that you do for a living. There's a choice that you've made to live out there. And, and sometimes you can, you can have a really large initiative other times, it's just a matter of opening that fence gate between October and January. Yeah, the only thing I was going to mention is I feel like the sagebrush step has the same challenge that people get out there and they look at it and they're like, oh, there's nothing here. And it's, you know, you start listing all the animals that live out there and you start, you get out there at sunrise or sunset and you just see this, this huge landscape. And, and like you said, it's photography that really brings that into people's homes, whether they live in Maine or New Jersey or Florida, where they may never see that type of landscape, um, you know, to really help them get an appreciation for the diversity that we really have and need to protect because it's there for a reason. It's that diversity is a necessity. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and sometimes it gets lost on the people that live there too. Sometimes I forget, you know, I tell you, during the last year and a half of, of, you know, in our COVID world, having been home an awful lot, um, you know, I'm I'm looking at the backyard birds in a way that I've never looked at them before in our home, in our, you know, tiny little swatch of land that we have in the middle of the city and really appreciate it. And um, um, but it's just, you know, sometimes it's hardest to love the things that are closest to you. You just don't you just don't see it. And um, that's why organizations like NAMPA are important, I think, is because you have this huge community of people out. It's very inclusive um, and you all can do this work, um, uh, you know, individually and then collectively, whether or not you're putting it up on or tacking a, a picture up on a refrigerator or showing it to the local school or um, you're going on a trip halfway around the world. So on behalf of NAMPA listeners, I'm sure the question's out there. Is your 2009 Great Plains American America's Lingering World book still available? Uh, barely. Yeah. Um, Get it while you can. Uh, yeah. it's. Uh, I was just telling somebody today, I've got one case at home here, and it's that's a, we're through our second printing. Um, so... Um, but I'm I'm sure that they're that they're still out there um, in the in the world. Well, people and move the, on that. But I, what I like wanted the crane, to crane book was the same crane books out of print too. So 
I'm working on a couple others, <laughs> but, but they're they're a couple years out yet. Um, one's one will be on whooping cranes, Ron. So um, that uh, that'll be that'll be uh, hopefully by uh, the 50 year anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, um, which whooping cranes are one of the early card carrying members. But um, yeah, now I, I was sent a link about Michael Forsberg and your book was also you produced a PBS show on it. Is that right? So people can, I mean, everybody loves a book in their hands and everybody who are photography enthusiasts, which this audience, everybody here loves photography and to be able to look at that, but to have a show. So that, is there a link or somewhere people can watch that, that they can quickly sit down in the days after listening to this podcast and be educated through your experiences on your, on this, on the PBS show. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. And that's just, that's the, that PBS show is the same name as the book. It's great plains, America's lingering wild and PBS will have that online. And I think it's free download uh, by this point. Um, the Platte Basin project that I'm working on, uh, you know, that we're in our 10th year. We did a PBS documentary that uh, appeared back in 2000. I think it was 18. Um, maybe it was when it first showed called Follow the Water. And so a former student of mine and, and friend Pete Stegan and I started at the very furthest western point that a drop of water starts in the Platte watershed in western Wyoming. And bike backpacked and canoed all the way to the drain. So uh, 55 days, um, 1,352 miles. And, um, and we, we took our iPhones, we had a GoPro, and we had one Nikon camera and two lenses that we shared. <laughs> and that's what we used <laughs> to document that whole journey. And we got done with it and there was enough interesting stuff on it. Um, as well as a film crew that met at us a couple key points, you know, that were front country um, that ended up making a show about that. So um, I think today, you know, the great thing about the world today as photographers is that you've got all these different venues. You know, you know, if you do, you do an article, you can do a book, you do a book, you can do a film, you do a film, you can do an exhibition, you do an exhibition, you can you know, you can build educational curriculum. These are the things that, and these don't have to be just these giant projects either. They can be something that, that is just, you know, very local. Um, but it's, you, you have the ability to do all of these things. You can do a story map, you know, online platform, all of that stuff. It's just, what's the, what's the story that you want to tell and how many different ways um, can you leverage the power of photography to do that, to tell the story that you want the world to hear? So that actually, that was one of the questions that I was going to have for you is what kind of tips do you have for others that are thinking about, you know, they might have a great idea of project they think that would, would work really well to tell a really strong, powerful conservation story. How do they get started? Where do they go? I mean, I mean, there's I know there's not one simple, easy formula to to do it, but what kind of tips do you have for people to, you know, maybe things that you've learned along the way or mistakes that you've done that you you kind of wish you somebody had said you know don't do it that way or something. I just I think you just start local. You know, it's really sexy to say I want to go tell the story of cheetahs in Africa, um, and maybe some people do, and that's great. But there's so many stories that you can tell that are so close to home that people are so eager 
to hear about. And, it, you know, these there's stories out there that want to be told and they're just looking for the vessel by, by somebody that will come along that'll tell them. So start local um, because that's also where you're going to get the most of your support. It's among people that know you and know your work that are in your communities that are rooting for you, that want to see you succeed, that want to help you out. Um, and and then understand that whatever it is that you do is going to cost twice as much and take twice as long as you think. <laughs> At least. Yeah. I that promise. is very true. That's kind of a modest <laughs> estimate whatever in my books. Whatever your budget is, whatever your time yeah. frame is, when you get to the end of it, you know, and it's you're feeling great and it's nine o'clock in the morning and you've had your coffee and the sun is shining and all of that. Don't make the final decision then. Wait till you're tired and it's cold or you're hot and, and, you know, you're just worn out and then double it, double whatever that is, you know, whatever the money is and whatever the time is. And that's going to be pretty accurate. Um, but those are the things. And, and I think, you know, we're all lifelong learners. I think, you know, if, if, if any of us think we got all this stuff figured out, then, then you're, you know, good for you, but um, you probably are not accurate. Um, I think continuing education. <laughs> you're so polite. <laughs> It's <laughs> well, we have to be. We live here in Nebraska, you know, we get along well, with each other. It's, 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 a, um, it's a family friendly podcast, 100%. Yeah, right. But look, places, uh, you know, workshops, there's a lot of there's a lot of workshops out there today. Uh, continuing education stuff, podcasts, things like that. Um, I work for a um, uh, been a long time instructor for Summit uh, Nature Photography Workshop. Um, which comes up to Jackson every year and, and does its thing. But it's also a lot of place-based uh, learning opportunities. They're leaning a lot more into conservation, storytelling. A lot of the instructors that are um, with Summit, you'll, you know, you would recognize in the conservation world and community. And, uh, um, you know, we, we all understand that, that at least for us, in order for us to do what we do, um, it's, it has to go beyond the, the beautiful pictures and, and it has to be wrapped in the story. And the more that you can share and show with people, the more you can bounce ideas off of folks that have been there or even bring in people that you don't know from a hole in the wall um, that, that maybe don't know anything about a topic, but, but are willing to listen and are good listeners. You always learn from each other. Um, and then slowly what rises to the surface is that nut um, that is your story. You just never know in those in those conversations or any of these arenas who you'll meet and what not difference you may make in their lives. But there'll be people out there that could have a huge difference in our direction just by something they say or do or what they might offer or where they come from. Always keep the communication door open. And Michael Forsberg, we started this podcast and, and the stories just I mean, just flowed naturally. You you have so many interesting projects and such a tremendous career history to share with everybody. But when I expect NAMPA members know you very well, but I have to say a few things before this is finished that in case you don't, I mean, go to Michael Forsberg's website. The links will be there. The links to the things we've discussed will be also at wildandexposed.com on our website for today's show notes. But Michael's been published in Audubon, National Geographic, Nature Conservancy, Outdoor Photographer Magazine, which I enjoyed reading uh, the, one of his grassland features on that blog. And 
He won a Nampa, Nampa People Award in 2017 for Environmental Impact. That's what was called the Environmental Impact Award from Nampa. But, and you may have heard of this guy. I mean, this stops people in their tracks, of course. In the same year, won the Ansel Adams Award for Conservation Photography from the Sierra Club. So congratulations on that. What a uh, goosebump moment that must have been. And I have to ask, in, in closing about this, if... Uh, Jim Henson ever called you about the crane arm sock puppet I saw on your website because that was cool and that was good and how well did that work? <laughs> well, I never knew Jim, uh, but I know his daughter Heather. Oh, you're kidding! <laughs> oh man, small, small world moment. I love that. Yeah. And she's a she's a great puppeteer. She's a great conservationist uh, too. And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just put crane on it; it's magic. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, That's a great photograph. You can see it on on, on Michael's website with someone in a white outfit holding up their arm with a, a crane sock, decorated. Yep. beautiful. Yep, that's right. Yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of crane costuming that's been going on over the years to help train these birds to do stuff in captive situations so they can be somewhat successful in the wild, particularly for the endangered ones. And, uh, and there's a lot, there's 12 of 15 crane species in the world that are critically endangered. And in North America, we've got sandhill crane that's the most populous of the 15 species of cranes. And we have the most rare, which is the whooping crane. So, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I even have one of those socks here at home. I'm not going to get it out, but <laughs> I do have it. So we were talking a little bit, you know, Mark's mentioned Nampa, um, you know, what had, you know, over the years, what has Nampa kind of, how has Nampa inspired you or how have you felt like you've been involved with Nampa to maybe help others be inspired? I, I just think it's been a steady presence, you know, a lot of things, organizations come and go, um, and I think Nampa has always been there. I remember uh, when I first joined Nampa, I think it's back in 1997 or something like that. And uh, um, I learned a lot of nuts and bolts early on. And not just about, um, you know, photography, but but the, the business of photography. Yeah, I was just looking at, at the uh, Nampa newsletter that came out today, and there's a really important uh, piece in there about copyright, you know, and handle, how you handle licensing and your images and what the updates are, because today we're in a world where people don't pay a lot of attention to intellectual property. Well, all of that's important, you know. Um, I really applaud uh, Nampa for stepping forward in these last few years with uh, ethical guidelines um, that help us put guardrails around, um, you know, what is what is ethical out there. Eth ethics can be a very difficult, complicated topic, of course. But, um, you know, I think NAMPA has always, always um, um, been able to come forward and address an issue or a challenge um, and um, come out the other side with policy that represents the, the collective membership in most cases. And and 
um, I haven't been to a um, to a conference for a while, but I think those conferences are are ridiculously important. Um, you know, because that's that's where you get to have these interactions and you get to see people face to face. And you know, last couple of years it sucked, obviously, because of <laughs> what we've had to put up with. But that's that's the world today, and uh, um, I think that networking. Those opportunities, stuff you do with high school scholarships, um, young people, um, all of that's good. Um, um, I've met people like Mark Lukes, um, you know, through Nampa. Um, um, so, yeah, it's all it's all good. Well, I think you'd be a fantastic speaker at a future conference to talk about your flyway project. Yeah, and the well, I'd like that. to do that sometime. Yeah, just planting that seed if it's not out there already. What are you working on these days? Well, the you know the the plat project requires an awful lot of um, what they call administration. <laughs> <laughs> that fun paperwork so, side, right? Yeah, that fun that fun part. So there's a lot more. Uh, lot more office time than I'm, than I'm used to, but, um, getting a little bit more used to it. Um, within the, within the plat project, I'm working on a story, uh, specific to the North Platte river along the Colorado Wyoming border on uh, pronghorn, uh, and other ungulate migration, um, um, and, connectivity of landscapes, particularly working landscapes up in that region out of North Park, Colorado, and down into Saratoga, Wyoming. Um, and I head there uh, soon. I'll be up at uh, up in Jackson at the uh, Summit Nature Photography Workshop here towards the end of the month, and then, um, and then head up to uh, Saskatchewan right after that for almost a month. Um, to uh, continue work on this uh, book project on whooping cranes that I've been at quietly for the last couple of years and will continue to um, until uh, that comes out um, as a book in a few years. So, um, and, and I'm doing, I do, you know, I think for a lot of photographers, we also write. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm a writer. I don't claim to be a writer. I'm a photographer that writes and, and, uh, I've looked a lot at the last 10 years of this plat project and have had a lot of experiences and stories that maybe don't necessarily stand um, alone, but collectively they can. And so I'm, I'm going to self-publish a book that, you know, I may only print 200 copies. I don't know. Um, but I want to tell, look back in the rearview mirror of these last 10 years and, and uh, combine some words with pictures and just, see what comes out the other side. So, um, those are the things that, that I'm working on, uh, most of the time and, uh, um, trying to help these, these young folks, um, teach class, uh, team teach it with, with my buddy, Mike at the university. It's, um, it's, it's a storytelling class. So we give kids, um, a big bundle of gear, we give them audio equipment, video equipment, GoPros, DSLR camera, and lenses at the beginning of the of the year, and um, we tell them that uh, they need to pick a story that they care about that that will take place over time on the land, and uh, and they get 
couple semesters, sometimes three, sometimes four semesters to tell it. And at the other end of it, they've got either got a documentary short film or they've got a beautiful uh, photo essay, portfolio, a story map or something um, that uh, gets to the heart of the matter uh, of something that they care about that they will also have forever. So that's their test. And it's not really a test because we really don't care about grades. And we have students every semester that come in that are new and then students that have been there for a couple semesters. So it's like a one room schoolhouse where everybody sort of helps each other out and get kids with seed corn caps and kids with with cowboy hats and tree huggers and and uh, stodgy business people and everything in between. And, and uh, we're all together in one uh, in one room telling stories and listening and learning from each other. And that's a pretty cool, pretty cool deal. So we're right in the right on the front end of that um, this semester. And um, so it's always fun to see where the things go. So. Like I said, lucky kids these days, the, the cool. <laughs> I mean, I never had a class where they would hand you a GoPro and say, go make a film, you know project out of it. I mean, I, and I was a communications major. We certainly had lots of projects, lots of things to write about, but just different times, very different times yeah, now. Different times. Sure. Well, I'm excited to hear about that program, number one, not just for photography students, but for conservation moving forward, because it is going to be a visual revolution that is going to have to make the change. Everybody's addicted to these real short snippets of, of life. And I think the more we can get natural content out there, I think the more impact we can have in a conservation effort. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's a lot of foresight in the program that you guys have started. And I appreciate, you know, obviously the work that you've done, but also going forward, what you're going, what and who you're going to develop as far as uh, conservation storytellers. Thanks, Ron. Might any of those be highlighted on a YouTube channel or anything people can go see as far as the students, or is it up to them whether they decide to post their work? And, and Yeah, it's usually, it's usually up to them. Um, a lot of the stuff that they do is, is, um, is stuff that can get really personal um, for some of them, you know, um, but uh, we have an internal platform that we that we collect those, and every once in a while we pop something up that comes up on our Plat Basin Time Lapse website. Um, a reason to yeah, keep checking back there. Yeah, yeah, it's it it's it's really really amazing to see what comes out of people. Um, you know, because there's always this moment. It seems like you know you you pick student picks something that they want to do and they get into it and it's like, oh, I don't know how in the world I'm going to pull this off. I don't know how to do this or that. And that doorway is closed there and I'm stuck here and da, 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 da. And, um, you know, struggle through it. And, uh, out the other side is always something that's really, it's really wonderful. And, uh, you know, and, talking about all the stuff that we have today as photographers. Sometimes um, we'll have a student that'll use just one camera and a lens, or maybe they'll just use a GoPro and that's it. Or maybe they'll use a, a game camera 
and that's it. Or maybe they won't use any cameras at all and they'll just use sound, you know, or some kids will come around and they'll use all of this stuff in this very beautiful way. I'll tell you one real quick story about one of the first students we had, um, Pete Stegan, who ended up going with me on the trip across the watershed. He was first student in class. Um, Pete was real into bugs and decomposition and stuff like that. So he took our class. He said, I want to just photograph, I want to document the decomposition of a dead deer. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, I want to do that. It's like, like, okay, yeah, fine. You know, make it work. (laughs) So he worked with our local uh, conservation officers who found a a roadkill deer and he, he hauled it off onto a, you know, a dark corner of, of East campus and some cottonwood trees in an area that, uh, is, is, you know, used for orchards and crop growing and all that sort of stuff. And, and he started using these cameras and set up and watched this deer decompose. But what Pete didn't realize is he was telling a much bigger story than that. And, and really what it became was not the decomposition of a dead deer. It was the story of, of, um, death and rebirth um, out in the middle of a, of a prairie. And, um, and it was beautiful. And his final presentation had no words in it. It was just melding all of these pictures and videos and sound together using all of the different technologies that he had into a little five minute piece uh, brings a tear to your eye, you know? And, um, and going into it, you know, Pete just had this crazy idea. Um, and it's just stuff like that, that just seeing something in a way that's familiar, but, but it, you know, something familiar that in a way that you've never seen it before. Um, you know, we all have, I don't, I don't believe that there's one person out there on the face of the planet that's not creative. And as human beings, you know, we're, we're highly visual people, you know, and, and we also have, um, um, a lot of heart. We can find it sometimes. You put those things together and it can, it can, it can move mountains. Well, that's a pretty powerful way to end, end this conversation, I think. Um, so if people want to find out more about your work, uh, you have an Instagram page that you keep active um, and your website as well as, and we'll make sure we're putting them in the show notes, but if you want to let people know where to reach out and find your, your work. Sure. So um, you mentioned Instagram first. So that's uh, M Forsberg photo. And um, um, the uh, my personal website is michaelforsberg.com. And the uh, uh, Platt Basin website is platbasintimelapse.com. And those are the three places that you'll um, that you'll find me. And I got a Facebook page, too, that um I'm not even sure I know what it is, but we all sometimes share content from Instagram over to Facebook, but um, they all have a place, you know. And, you know, I would encourage everyone that's listening, if you haven't come to see cranes on the Platte River in the springtime in March, um, it's a uh, experience that you'll never forget. And Don, I think you, you, touched on maybe the most important thing that doesn't have anything to do with what you see. It's what you hear because, um, 
when you when you go back to your bed at night, when you go back home, uh, wherever your home is, after having spent time with those birds on the river and you close your eyes, you can hear them. You know, it's that sound that lingers. Um, and it's been calling across this continent for nine million years. So, When you, you learn a little bit about, you know, and I do encourage everyone, you know, before you go out, to a new place or to see a new animal, you know, do a little research about them, learn a little bit about it. It's not just about taking photographs. These are unbelievable birds that do a crazy migration. I've even, you know, at this point since then, I've, I've been taken aback by the cranes, just like a lot of people have. And I have photographed them as far as Fairbanks and I have photographed them as far South as Florida and, and Louisiana, um, you know, all across, you know, from, the West Coast to, you know, Florida would be the East Coast, but they are an, an interesting bird. But learn a little bit about their history. They do sound, this is so cliche to say, but they do sound very prehistoric. And it is a very unique sound. And that morning that I went out, I had not gone out to, when I arrived in central Nebraska, I got there to at night, the night before. So I had, did not have a chance to get out there at sunset or in the afternoon and the first experience I had with them was pulling into that parking lot when just red lights on, no headlights, and that was – you couldn't see anything. And they do that on purpose so that you don't disturb the birds. But that was what you picked up on was just the sound. And it was thousands of them. You know, there's half – I think you said it's close to a million now that, that migrate through there at the time. I think it was about 500,000. But it's just an unbelievable sound that will not – you will never forget. I I love the fact that you're emphasizing the prairie ecosystem because it it's something that's very near and dear to my heart having grown up in it and and now being able to take people out to experience that for themselves and the you know as loud and as deafening as the cranes are during the migration sitting out waiting for a daylight on a sage grouse lake sometimes the prairie songbirds are exactly the same and so it is a it's a wonderful ecosystem that not a lot of people you know most people just drive by it on their way to the you know Rocky Mountains or or the Tetons or, or Rocky Mountain National Park or sorry Grand Teton National Park but there's so much to see here and experience I was on a uh, I was out on a prairie on the Platte River um, a few days ago because I needed to just get away uh, for a little bit and uh, um, on a wire barbed wire fence uh, between uh, two pastures were a bunch of birds sitting on the wire and they were all sparrow like looking birds you know they're rather you know most of these prairie songbirds are are grassland birds are are uh, more cryptically colored they're they're various shades of brown and they're all beautiful but they're not they're not the cardinals they're not the orioles they're not those birds but you know side by side was sitting a bobolink and a dick thistle and those are birds that that if you don't know what you're looking at you probably don't even know what they are or even what their names are but I looked at the bobolink first, and I know that in a few short weeks that bobolink is going to fly, begin its migration south, 6,000 miles into uh, South America, down into the, the uh, pompous grasslands of Argentina. 
And the dick thistle that was sitting right next to it is going to go down to the, the Hanos grasslands in Venezuela, you know, 3,000 miles. So we're looking at a 12,000-mile round trip and a 6,000-mile round trip, two birds sitting side by side together that build their nests on or near the ground in the middle of a prairie. And if they survive the trials and travails of migration and they survive what they have to deal with on their diminishing wintering grounds, either, you know, being dealing with pesticides or guns, they come back oftentimes to the exact same place that they nested the previous year. And that is remarkable to me out in what many people would consider a featureless landscape, you know. And there are a thousand stories out there about these creatures um, in these prairies and in these plains and in the sage um, that really need to be told. And they need to be told again and again and again and again by, by as many of us that can tell them because we're each going to bring something different to the table. You know, it's just not evident at a glance. So um, getting to know these places, these animals, doing a little digging around research ahead of time makes an awful lot of difference. And then just letting wonder take you um, because they're all remarkable, all of them, and they all need our help. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal words. So thank you, Mike, for joining us today. I think you've, as always, you've, you've always been very passionate about what you're doing. And I love the work that you've done in bringing awareness to the plains and to different animals out there that, that need the attention. So, so thank you for coming in and chatting with us tonight. And if you're not familiar with Nampa, I definitely recommend che- checking out our website. That's nampa.org and see all the different things that the organization offers, whether you are a professional photographer or just getting started. There's lots of information out there that you can benefit from. And on that note, I will close out tonight's episode and we will catch you the next time on the Nature Photographer Podcast. Mm-hmm.